0: Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti, lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain, sleepless nights, shallow breathing, Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice, these are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo, it's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. I am grateful you're tuning in to this first episode of season two of the podcast. Our topic for today, lies, falsehoods, and deceptions in the context of family law. For a long time now, I've been fascinated by this most human of human traits, to lie. If your inner voice just whispered, but I never lie... I venture to say you are not being honest with yourself. We all lie. If the definition of lying is representing something with the goal of creating a false impression. There are great statistics out there on how often people lie per day, including sorting by gender and age group. Seek them out if you're interested. There have also been a number of studies completed on lying. In one uh, at the University of Massachusetts, psychologist Robert S. Feldman found that people tend to lie when they want to appear likable or competent. The study found that 60% of people lied at least once during a 10-minute conversation and told an average of two to three lies. Let's consider some examples of lies and deceptions. We lie to shut down a conversation, as in, I'm fine. We lie not to hurt another person's feelings, as in, don't listen to them, this haircut really suits you. We lie to prolong a child's sense of wonder, as in, yes, Santa is coming tonight. Some people call those white lies, suggesting there is a scale for measuring falsehoods. Some lies being more forgivable than others, perhaps. Still based on my technical definition, these are all lies. They are all designed to create a false impression. But our subject for today is rather different, namely deceptions, misrepresentations, and straight-up falsehoods designed to achieve a purpose, to alter perception of an event, a situation, to bolster a position. Sometimes a deception is at the very root of the relationship breakdown and a cause of it. When an actual separation takes place, Two narratives often emerge out of it, often at the very start, each party putting their own unique spin on why it happened and how, who was at fault. This is because humans seek explanations. They find a sense of order in explanations, assigning labels to them and putting them in drawers according to cause and effect. Fault, perhaps. Then the two narratives created by the separated couple spill into the world. Each side attempts to reach out and gather participants in their particular narrative, subscribers to it, if you will—friends, family, neighbors, co-workers. These narratives begin to spin, and sometimes. They engulf actual facts, taking them along like an avalanche roaring down a mountain. In this episode, I will share with you a couple of my favorite quotes about lies. And here is the first one from Winston Churchill. A lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on. Great, isn't it? It speaks to the speed with which a lie can travel and take root. By the time truth gets its pants on, there's a lot of work to be done to correct the falsehoods. Part of my job as a family law lawyer involves managing my client's reaction to the separation, not the way a mental health professional would, based on specific training and with specific clinical skills, but it's a management exercise nonetheless. When people separate You do not see smiles all around. People's emotions come to the surface. Kumbaya is not a word we would use to describe the atmosphere. In fact, many family law cases actually involve a lot of conflict. People wear their emotions on their sleeve, and lawyers have to manage those emotions. In family law, I say everything is turned up to 11. People feel hurt And because they do, they sometimes look for vindication in as many forms as might be available to them. And they start jockeying for positions, competing against one another in an attempt to prove to the other party that they are the winner, that they got the better of them and are coming out on top. In past episodes, I have talked at some length about where such positioning may come from. And how it might give a person, particularly the party who did not want to separate, a sense of vindication or even moral justice. I could give examples of many explanations I have heard over the years for why people behave the way they do after the separation and how they justify taking positions or even misinterpreting the truth. When humans feel hurt, many rules of social conduct are set aside, sometimes deliberately, sometimes unwittingly. I have heard a number of people explain in the context of family law that they felt justified in lying because that served as appropriate revenge for a wrong experienced by the liar. I think I've made my point about the basic reality. And that is that separation involves a great deal and a wide range of emotion. Two people who previously formed a unit and who presumably worked together on improving their joint lot in life and who raised children together are now two separate entities. Importantly, as separated units they may have and likely do have very different legal interests. And where before they were working together on a common goal, they may now perceive that it is one working against the other. So people become protective. Protective of their feelings, protective of their space, protective of their right to privacy, and protective, importantly, of their money, or what they perceive to be their money. I generally agree with the idea that people lie, deceive, or misrepresent for one of two main reasons. First, it may be because they believe that lying and its result is more favorable to them than the alternative. So the lie is essentially designed to promote the liar's position, or by extension, to worsen the position of the person being targeted with the lie. Here, the lying is self-interested, designed to serve the interests of the liar. Lying can also happen in a second set of circumstances, and here, the liar has difficulty appreciating or distinguishing the difference between the truth and their lie, and there could be different reasons for this lack of clarity, including an incredible amount of stress or mental illness, for example. In family law, various forms of deception are as common as leaves in a forest. Again, people are jockeying for positions. They have an instinct to self-preserve, which is heightened once the separation happens, and also they are often incredibly stressed. These ubiquitous elements of heightened anxiety, suspicion, and the instinct of self-preservation sometimes interfere with the ability to think clearly. If the stress is prolonged and if the person being subjected to it does not receive appropriate support like counseling or medical intervention. Narratives may start overlapping, and truth may be harder and harder to distinguish from a position taken to achieve a goal. Sometimes people become so invested in their quest to succeed in the contest which sometimes unfortunately follows a separation, that they lose any measure of objectivity and are unable to truly assess what they were doing or saying. For all of these reasons, it is very important that people who are separated and who face this type of stress get help. And I've talked, in prior episodes about what that help may look like. Don't rush through decisions. Select your advisors and supporters carefully, including based on their ability to competently assist you with the issue you're tackling. And most of all, take care of yourself because there's a lot at stake and you are making decisions which may impact your life and the futures of your children for some time to come. Here is the bottom line. I accept that there are situations in which misrepresentations may result from a heightened level of stress and may in fact be more like mistakes or misstatements rather than actual deliberate lies, or misrepresentations. If a family law case involves an individual whose capacity to appreciate their circumstances may be impaired, then specific steps need to be taken to assist that person. But I'm not talking about that situation here. I'm talking about the fact that many people who separate are impacted by this event so profoundly, as profoundly as the passing of someone close to them, for example, that that level of stress or sadness or disappointment or even all those emotions mixed together can have a profound impact on their... Ability to calmly and deliberately sort through facts and represent them accurately. Then there are deliberate lies. People creating events or figures out of thin air. With the premeditated intent of altering perception or creating an impression. With the goal of achieving specific consequences. Here, from my perspective, there are at least two levels of misrepresentation, but I will focus on the two. The first level involves presenting a set of facts, describing events, for example, from a particular point of view. It's often misrepresentation by omission rather than deliberately creating a version of the truth, if you will. Here, I mean that the storyteller, one of the parties to the separation, chooses to present a selective set of facts, only portions of the entire picture. In describing an event, for example, or a chronology. Because based on this careful and deliberate selection, the reader or listener is more likely to draw a particular conclusion out of the story. The selection is made because if the entire story were presented without these careful omissions a different conclusion might be drawn so the narrator puts forward the good and omits the bad puts only their best foot forward this type of selective presentation as i call it is very very common in family law in fact I would call it the bread and butter of affidavit evidence. In a typical family law case, a family court judge can begin to understand what is actually happening only after reading both sets of affidavits. In other words, the evidence from each party in writing. This selective presentation causes many people going through separation, great stress and disappointment. What I hear clients say, for example, is, but that is not the complete story. Or, but why didn't he tell the judge about that other time we went to his parents? Or, why didn't she mention that she worked at the store for five years after our first son was born? Not all is lost at this juncture because the other party then has an opportunity as part of the family law case to fill in those blanks and to complete the picture in the context of the litigation. The other level of misrepresentation is deliberate lying. And unfortunately, in family law, there are sadly many instances of this. Again, people are jockeying for positions, fighting to improve their legal claims before the court, and also trying hard to weaken the other party's chances of success with their own claims. People literally invent events sometimes. They even manufacture documents Promissory notes magically appear, purporting to be signed ten years ago, but really created yesterday, and the ink on the signatures is not even dry. People testified to oral agreements which were never made. Interestingly, sometimes during the relationship, the parties lied together, to creditors, for example, to protect the family. Now. They turn on one another and sometimes even invent brand new narratives for why they walked through different doors as a unit. One side says they were pressured and never wanted to participate in the lies in the first place. The other says they cooperated fully. It can be very difficult to wrap one's head around the idea that something that might be considered an obvious truth is now being forgotten by your ex. I hear this very often from my clients. How can my ex possibly be saying this? She knows it's not true. How can my ex tell the story now he knows that's not how it happened? This can be very disappointing and hurtful and sometimes even emotionally crushing because it might feel like the very foundation of your belief system or your relationship is being undercut and is crumbling right in front of you. I have heard the following and have heard this on countless occasions. I don't know this person. I would never ever have thought that this person was capable of such lying. Let me give you a classic example. And here we might be talking about write-out fibbing or selective recollection or selective presentation or perhaps a medley of all of them. When a claim for spousal support is made, the exes often have very, very different recollections of their discussions about their roles in the marriage. One spouse says that he or she actively encouraged the other to work outside the home, and the other spouse specifically recollects a discussion an agreement between them that one would work outside the home and the other would look after the household and the children. This is very, very common. And in some instances, one of the spouses may be deliberately misrepresenting, or perhaps each of them may be amplifying some part, some seed of a discussion they had during the marriage, to improve their position either in support of or in response to the claim for spousal support. I mean, it is entirely possible that during the relationship they had both sets of discussions, and now each spouse is remembering or amplifying in their mind, deliberately or subconsciously, the discussion which is more helpful to their case before the court. Lawyers are trained to employ a number of techniques to test the veracity, the truthfulness of representations made by a party in a family law case. These techniques include, for example, requesting further paper disclosure. Let's consider an example. Party A says as part of their family law case that she inherited $200,000 from her grandfather during the marriage. And if that information is factual, the inheritance might be treated in a particular way when it comes to sorting out the party's property claims in the case party B's lawyer is certainly entitled to get more information about this inheritance. And it's not expected to simply accept the representation by party A without further due diligence. So asking for further disclosure to unpeel the onion, so to speak, to truly understand the issue at hand is one way of testing whether the representation is accurate. When a family law case first starts and people put forward their initial positions, it can be very frustrating for someone to see the initial batch of inaccuracies and perhaps even deliberate misrepresentations. I have seen many clients become visibly stressed because they feel that the other side has already succeeded by simply putting forward the falsehood. But in a legal system like ours, everyone is entitled to test the strength and to assess the weakness of the other party's case. And this is true in family law as well. Further in this episode, I will talk a bit more about what you can do to help your lawyer spot the inaccuracies and even lies in the first place and how you can, in fact, help counter them by presenting either more complete or even directly contradictory evidence in response to the allegation. Here is a very simple and basic example. If one party says the other parent never attended a single medical appointment with the children, and that representation is in fact inaccurate, it would be helpful if the parent who is alleged not to have participated were able to present evidence to the contrary. And that can come in a variety of ways, including their own statement, which is in fact evidence before the court, or better yet, corroborating evidence, which may be, for example, doctor's notes which show that over a period of years that parent in fact attended medical appointments and a notation was made in the doctor's file to that effect. Another way of testing the veracity or accuracy of evidence is cross-examination, which in Ontario, in the context of a family law case, is called questioning. Many people recognize this process by the name deposition because many American law dramas portray American litigants being deposed. This is essentially a process in which A party to a family law case is questioned under oath by the opposing party's lawyer. And the questions and answers are recorded and then generated in writing and actually represent evidence before the court. So questioning is a classic way of testing the factual foundations of the other party's case, including the evidence on which they have and will rely on for the purposes of pursuing their legal claim. Questioning can involve a very detailed and sometimes lengthy unpacking of the evidence, if you will. If a particular chronology of events is presented, for example, the lawyer doing the questioning can go into great detail around the various events and demonstrate where the story does not add up. Here is another one of my favorite quotes about lies. This one is from one of England's greatest poets, Alexander Pope. He who tells a lie is not sensible of how great a task he undertakes, for he must be forced to invent 20 more to maintain that one. I think this is a terrific quote. We family law lawyers live by this philosophy. And that is that where there is a lie, there are likely more. And second, lying is a taxing exercise, meaning it means the liar has to actively maintain a web of deception, juggling the various elements of the false narrative. Often, the whole thing falls apart, It is possible to lie and not get caught, yes. But it is very difficult, and questioning is designed, among other things, to pull at the web to see if it can stand up to pressure. So how can you help your lawyer when you see deceptions or even outright misrepresentations in the other party's materials? At the most basic level alert your lawyer to the inaccuracies, and let me explain what, from my perspective, is most effective here. Let's imagine you receive an affidavit in support of a motion. In my practice, we always ask our clients to review the document carefully and to provide us with their comments, including any evidence to contradict what is being said in the affidavit. While I understand, I really understand that it can be extremely emotional to read evidence from the other side and difficult to wrap your head around the fact that the other side may be lying, it will not be helpful to your lawyer to have your comments be limited to handwritten notes next to various paragraphs saying lies, lies, lies. We need more than that. My suggestion is that you first read the document in its entirety, from beginning to end. You may want to do this first by skimming what is written so that you get the general gist of the content, and then going back to the beginning and reading the document word for word, from beginning to end. From my experience... This is more helpful than reading the first line, commenting on it, than reading the second, commenting on that, and carrying on that way till the end. Sometimes what is not said in the first paragraph of the affidavit may be said in the tenth. So in commenting on the first paragraph, you may be criticizing the fact that some part of the story was not brought forward. And in fact that story, that part of the story may actually be described later on. So this is why I'm suggesting reading the entire affidavit before starting to comment. What family law clients have found useful in the past is the idea of writing out the comments in a separate document so that you can comment on specific paragraphs by simply referring to them by their number, the number uh, in the original affidavit. This approach is more effective, including because you will have much more space on a separate document than you do if you scribble your comments in the margins on the copy of the affidavit. Humans have different ways of processing information and conveying information. Some are readers and writers, and some are talkers. If you are a talker, and if you think it would be more effective for you to provide your comments on the affidavit in person, in the context of a meeting or by telephone, for example, then request that kind of communication with your lawyer. The key is to be thorough and to focus on allegations which are relevant and material. What do I mean here? What does it mean that some allegation is relevant and material? Here's an example. If your case is about children and whether they should attend French immersion, a statement in the other parent's affidavit that her shoe size is 8 is neither relevant nor material to the issues at hand. Many people who have experienced separation feel the need to tell their story, their entire story. And for this reason, many affidavits in family law are full of statements, allegations, which have nothing to do with the issue at hand. We lawyers are trained to spot irrelevant verbiage. And if you're wondering whether something needs to be commented on or not, I suggest it's better to err on the side of caution and comment in any event so that later your lawyer can have the option of using that information or discarding it if it's not useful or relevant. Organization is key, and that includes Because family law can be very paper intensive. The more organized you are from the beginning, the better handle you will have on your own case. And the more effective you will be in assisting your lawyer. If you're interested in some tips on how to manage paperwork and family law, I did a separate episode on this topic. And it launched on August 28, 2020. Lies are most effectively pierced through with evidence which demonstrates them to be a lie. Oh, by the way, that's my cat in the background. Recalling our example from earlier, if there are allegations made about your parenting, sit yourself down and think about how you might counter these allegations. And the more third party or documentary paper evidence you have the better is there someone who could provide evidence to the court contradicting the allegation perhaps by way of a supporting affidavit is there a document that might demonstrate that the allegation being made is not accurate don't forget photographs if someone is alleging you never went on a trip to Mexico but there are photos of you on that trip with others in the photo that picture is worth something and so is the evidence the others in the photo can give to help you respond to the allegation. Remember your lawyer may not know the photo exists so you have to tell them about it. The most effective way of actually responding to an affidavit, which may be full of false allegations, is to create a list of lies you want to pierce through and make a plan in writing on how you're going to do that and what evidence you will tell your lawyer about to help them achieve that goal. Key takeaways about lies, falsehoods, and deceptions in the context of family law. Number one. They are common. Number two, they are not always deliberate. Number three, when they are deliberate, they can be profoundly hurtful on an emotional level. But also requiring a careful, measured, thought through plan on how to pierce through them. Don't panic. If you're having some difficulty managing your emotional response to the lies, reach out for help and then think through how you can counter the lie. Work with your lawyer on a plan to do that strategically and methodically. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically Signing off for now